past Monday, I sat down with the staff. First thing I said to him was, all right, how do we avoid the Easter hangover? It's probably not a question you've ever asked yourself, but if you're in pastoral ministry, it's one of the questions you confront all the time, I think, as you go through the season. But, you, you know, here, here we are, we're working through the season leading up to Holy Week, and we're processing the triumphal entry, right, the kingship of Jesus, and I mean, it's not hard. I mean, you celebrated the parade, right? And then, you know, the, the cross, Good Friday, obviously very sobering, but, it, but it's incredibly majestic, sacred. I mean, it, it is this incredible symbol of the overwhelming love of God that he has for us, right? And then you got Easter, right? The resurrection Sunday, Jesus' victory over death, and all that kind of stuff, and it's just proclaiming the new life. It's great stuff, right? And then you come back to the Sunday after, and it's like, all right, now we're back in Leviticus. If you turn to chapter 3, and we're going to be studying. You know, it's just like, and I, I got to tell you, I don't think it's just pastors and churches that experience that. I think a lot of people who, quote, unquote, walk with God, have faith, experience the same thing. You know, not to, but there were just a few more people here last week than today. Right? Because for some people, you know, it's just not right to celebrate Easter without going to church. I mean, it is about the resurrection, right? So you've got to at least go to church. But, but somehow or another, when they show up on Easter, there is no expectation that the next Monday is going to be any different than the last Monday. It's still going to be about getting the laundry done and going to work and surviving another day with my boss and et cetera. And, and their anticipation is, is that all of this power that's available to us in the resurrection, it just really doesn't play itself out in everyday life. And so they're kind of already anticipating, embracing, and accepting the Easter hangover, right? They don't really expect anything to change in their lives. Some folks, so much so, they got to a place where they celebrate Easter without even really ever thinking about going to church. Last weekend, restaurants were swelling with people at Easter brunches, right? Where going to church, connecting with God, listening to God in some capacity about the resurrection didn't really seem to fit into it at all. And, and what I want to try to do today, as we continue in our series about the defining moment, is to somehow give us a handle on how to avoid the Easter so that life doesn't go on just the way it was, where we're somehow just in survival mode and hoping to get through stuff, but somehow or another we can actually tap into this incredible power that God has supposedly given us in the resurrection so we can live lives differently today. And the text that I've chosen is John chapter 20. I'd love for you to get your Bibles and turn to John chapter 20 with me. I know a lot of you come without your, your Bibles, and that's okay. You can find one right underneath your seat. We'd love for you to turn in um, the Bibles that are there to uh, John chapter 20, which is page 922. And we're going to look at an event in the life of Christ where I, I think that the disciples in some ways were also trying to, they were struggling with a, with, a, with a resurrection hangover, if you will. They didn't really kind of know what was next, and they were kind of fearful and, and some other things. So here's, we're going to start in the 19th verse, read through, and, and I think the context is somewhat self-explanatory, so just follow along. Says, so it was the evening of the first day of the week. So it's Sunday night. You know, Jesus was resurrected on Sunday morning, had some encounter with 
Mary Magdalene and some others, and, and now the disciples are gathered together, minus Judas, and we're gonna, if you keep reading in John, you're going to see it was minus Thomas in this particular event. So they're gathered together. The disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because of the fear of the Jews. They, they got good memories. Jesus got arrested at night. So they got the doors locked so that the leaders can't come after them. They're living in fear. One of the aspects that is always a part of a theophany, a revelation of God, specifically a manifestation of God, almost always the first piece of that is fear, where the disciples already had it before Jesus got there. But as soon as he gets there, he offers them the next piece of that, which is peace. Do not be afraid. Then Jesus, it says, stood among them and said to them, peace be to you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his sides. And it's an incredible picture for us that the resurrected Lord still bears the marks of his identification with us. As he sits at the right hand of the Father right now interceding for us, he's still got the scars in his body from what he bore for us on the cross. The disciples, they rejoiced when they saw the Lord. That's probably a massive understatement, right? Jesus said to them again, peace to you. Father has sent me. I also send you. We're, we're going to dwell there in just a minute. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And it moves to the next scene when he has this encounter with Thomas. Now, I really just would love to just launch into this idea of how Jesus tries to engage disciples in such a way that they, they can avoid the Easter or the resurrection hangover of life just kind of going on like it had always been without really living in the wake of the resurrection. But before I do that, you know, one of the things I always tell you is that you should be far more interested in what God says than what I think about what God has said, right? So one of our objectives always is that when you walk out the door, you have a much better understanding of what the Bible says and what it means in addition to how it applies to our lives. And so in order to get there, there's a couple things that we need to deal with this in this passage before I kind of get into my, my point and my emphasis. One of those is this whole idea of when Jesus breathing on the disciples and saying, receive the Holy Spirit, right? And the other one is whoever sins you forgive, they're forgiven. And whoever sins you retain, they are retained. That's, that's just a little troubling. You, you might have a question or two about that. I know I have a couple. Well, let's start with this first one, right? About Jesus looking at the disciples and, and, and he breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you, this may not create a question at all, and, and, and that's fine, and, and you're probably more normal, but if you're a theologian, a Bible scholar who sits around with maybe too much time on their hands, you ask the question, what's the difference between this and Pentecost? Right? Pentecost is 50 days later beginning of the book of Acts, right, where the, really the church is empowered by the coming of the Holy Spirit, right? There's this sound like a rushing wind and these what looks like flame, you know, um, tongues of flame and et cetera. This manifestation of the Spirit comes rushing on the church, which we're actually going to look at next week in our concluding message related to finding moments. What's the difference between that and this, right? And, 
And, and so, you, you know, you have this picture, and there's some questions that are created. You wonder if, like, Jesus kind of stood and just kind of went, or, you know, if he went around the room one by one, you know. No, I won't do that to Henry. You know, just, you can just breathe on each other, right? You know, you, you wonder what kind of what it looked like, but, but what's going on here? And, and, and the church really got captivated with all of this. There was, at one point in time, and, and I actually think maybe in some ways there's some validity to this, because earlier in the Gospel of Mark, um, Jesus promised the coming of the Holy Spirit, and there were those early on, who believed that this was like an acted-out promise as he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. What, he, what Jesus was saying is that I'm, I'm promising you the coming of the Spirit. I've done it before, and I'm promising it again, and it's going to happen in the near future. Just like he had commissioned them before in John chapter 18, but here he commissions them again as the Father has sent me. You know, and so he's repeating himself. And actually there was this big international church council called the Council of Constantinople, and the leading guy who was advocating that interpretation, he was labeled a heretic because that was just considered to be false theology, false teaching. I don't know exactly why, because I think there's some, maybe some merit to that, that kind of thing. There are others who think that this means that what, what, what Jesus was doing was that he was, he was giving them a, 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 a presence of the Spirit that equipped them for the next 50 days. So they had the coming of the Holy Spirit in the day of Pentecost. You can, if you remember, you can follow along in some Old Testament stories. Maybe the most dramatic of those is King Saul, right? You know, when he was anointed to be the king, the, the, the Spirit came upon him, and he was equipped to perform his role. But somewhere along the line, he got to a place where he had so violated that call in God's life that God chose to remove his Spirit from him, right? So there's these ways in which God gave a a dispensation, he gave a gift of, a presence of, an equipping of the Holy Spirit to people who had a job to do, and, and it was a limited one. It was, it, in other words, it was just given to them to be able to perform the role they were supposed to do. And there's some who look at this text and who say that what Jesus is doing is he's giving them a gift of the Holy Spirit so they know how to handle themselves for the next 50 days, and it's a temporary kind of limited gift of the Spirit, and it goes forward. And there may be some merit to that as well. But here's what I think is happening, right? And, and I think this is an emphasis of the, of, of the Apostle John as he's writing this gospel. He's trying to show that, God, that Jesus, the Son of God, is fully God just like God the Father. I mean, he started out that right in, in John chapter 1, right? In the, beginning was the word, and the word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and nothing came into being. You know? So I think this is literally supposed to be a New Testament reflection of the Old Testament picture of the Garden of Eden, where God pulls the dust together, he forms Adam, and then he breathes on life into him, right? And this, this inanimate corpse who has no life, has been formed in the shape of a man, is given life, and he, and, he, and he comes to life. In the same way, Jesus is breathing on the disciples, and he says, now you have the new life comes from me. It's, it's almost, and I wouldn't push this too far, but it's almost like this is their conversion experience. This is the moment when they experience the new life that they have in Christ. And, and it's an incredible moment. And, and so Jesus is, is breathing on them and says, you know, I've come that you might have a new life, a different life. Not the life that you have, but a new life. So that's one piece of it. The other is 
what's this whole forgiveness of sins thing, right? You see in verse 23, and it's certainly somewhat tied into their commission. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. <laughs> and if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, this is kind of a troubling kind of passage, isn't it? I mean, you could kind of take it along this lines, you know, it, and there's lots of discussions that go on. Probably some of this you don't really care about much. There's some that say, well, maybe this really only applied to the ten, you know, the, just the ten disciples that are in, in, in the upper room. Well, there, we get some pictures from other Gospels that there were a lot more people than just the ten there. So this, did this extend to everybody or just to the ten, or did it include Thomas when he wasn't there, or would you add on Paul later and that kind of stuff? And so is it, is it just contained to them and it never goes on to someone else? Or is this a, kind of a, a gift that was given to the leaders of the church and is passed on to the leaders of the church as you go down? And there certainly are some Christian traditions who believe that. There are others who, who think, well, this is really kind of given to the whole church and therefore all of us. And, but the most troubling part of the whole thing is this perspective that you and I somehow or another have a role and other people being forgiven or not being forgiven based upon the choice that we make. So let's take an example. You know, i got my friend Brian over here. Let's just say Brian does something to really hurt me, right? He offends, he, you know, he does something wrong, something that's sinful, and he, and he hurts me, and, 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 I'm, and, and I'm hurt by him. And, and after a season, the Spirit convicts him of it, you know. And so he comes to me and he says, I'm asking you for your forgiveness and I'm asking God to forgive me for what I did. And I say, nah, I don't want to. And you know what? I'm, I'm exercising my authority as a follower of Christ, and I'm forbidding God to forgive you as well. I'm retaining that sin. Th- that sound right to you? It doesn't, right? You know, and, 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 and so we, we have to kind of understand that when you process this passage of Scripture, that you, you really kind of have to work from what we know from clarity, what's really clear to us and move forward. And what we know is that forgiveness is the privilege of God in and of himself. Nobody else gets that privilege, right? God is the one who forgives our sins in an eternal, redemptive, spiritual sense. I mean, that's really the whole point that Jesus, that, that underlies this event that happens in the life of Christ. Remember, if you remember the, the healing of the, of the paral- paralytic, right? I mean, they're trying to get Jesus, they're trying to get Guys are carrying their friend. They're trying to get him into Jesus. He's been paralyzed for a long time. They can't get in there. You know, it's like they're coming up to the crowd and they're saying, beep, beep, let us through this guy. You know, it's like, get out of here. Go to the end of the line. Forget it, you know. And so these guys climb around, take the stairs up to the roof. They pull the roof apart and they lower the paralyzed man right before Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Some of you remember the story. He doesn't look at the guy and say, hey, you know what? I have decided to heal you. Pick up your pallet and go. First thing he says to him, he says, my child, your sins are forgiven. And, and, the, and the, the religious leaders who were sitting in the front row, I mean, they, they just have a cardiac arrest. Oh, you know, they're, they're, because they're saying only God can forgive sins, which is exactly the point, which is exactly the point that Jesus is trying to make. So then his response to them says, well, let me ask you this question. What's easier, for me to say your sins are forgiven or to actually be able to say to this guy, I choose to heal you, rise up and walk, confirming the fact that I really am God. That's exactly what happens. Only God gets to forgive sins. So what are we supposed to do with this passage of Scripture? And I, 
a couple of thoughts. I, I do think there's a sense in which, which this teaching is connected to some of Matthew's teaching about whatever we bind on earth is bound in heaven, and whatever we loose on earth is loosed in heaven. And some of that was tied into a cultural discussion among the Jews about the role of teaching and, and how rabbis had to make sure that they were absolutely crystal clear about what was right and what was wrong in the eyes of God. And, and so what Jesus is saying is, I, I'm giving you the ability, they would say, to be absolutely crystal clear with the world about what it takes to be forgiven and what takes place when you're not forgiven. And I'm giving you the ability to be able to loose that and to bind that on the earth. In other words, you can make it crystal clear that people really can know the truth. There's probably some senses maybe where it involves the idea that that God has given us His Spirit and we can have a sense of discernment when we're dealing with others where we can kind of get the sense that, well, you know what? You know, I, I, I don't really think you have repented of this sin. You really experienced deep forgiveness. Not that we get to make those judgments, but we can see those. But really, I think the larger message, and, and, and several number of guys go in this direction who, who have studied the Scriptures, and, and I follow along with them, is that what, what Jesus is say, saying here is that, is that you have the responsibility to proclaim to the world what it takes to be forgiven and what happens not forgiven. And so he's, he's talking about the fact that we, it's, it's not that we actually do the forgiving, but we get to proclaim how others are forgiven. But it's a difficult passage in general. But here, here's, here's the piece I want to come back to. There's a little piece here. So Jesus, let's, let's kind of follow. Jesus shows up, right? They, they, they've huddled in the upper room. They've heard these stories from the women, and maybe Peter and some others have had some encounters, and they're gathering in the upper room, and, and they don't really know what to make of all of this, and they got the doors locked because they're afraid the authorities are going to find them, and they're trying to hunker down and stay, stay out of sight and that kind of thing, and, 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 and they're really kind of asking, what happens next? You know, they're just they're caught up in the other room. What is going to happen next? Jesus stands in their midst, and, and he gives them the customary greeting. Peace be to you. It's kind of like I say, hey, how you doing? You know, because they, they always greeted each other with shalom back then with days, right? You know, I, I hope it's well with you. I hope, I, hope, I, hope, I hope your future, your week is going to go well kind of idea. And that's kind of what they used it at. I mean, that's, it, it didn't, most of the point, it become so casual. It wasn't invested with a lot of spiritual meaning. It's just like, you know, I'm, I'm, I, hope you have a, I hope you have a good day <laughs> kind of idea. Then when he backs up, and they get a little further down, and he shows them his hands in his side, and he looks at them, and he says, he says, guys, I want to show you, I want to give you the gift. I really do want you to have a good day. I want you to have a good week. I want you to have a great life. My peace I'm giving to you. I, 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 I'm trying to give you all that's a part of the future. And he says, and here's the gift. Father sent me. The church often hasn't accepted that commission as a gift. We've embraced it as a responsibility, right? One of those things that we know we need to do. But actually, we get the word mission from the Latin word that means to be sent. And so it's directly connected. And so the church thinks about its mission as the ones who are supposed to be sent. But we kind of receive it more as a 
burden or as a chore or something we need to do. We don't necessarily see it as the gift that releases to us the kind of life that God intended for us in the aftermath of the resurrection. You know, I mean, here we are 2,000 years later, right? Jesus has lived his life. He's died on the cross. He's been buried. He's been resurrected. And we're 2,000 years, plus or minus a little bit later. And the church has been bearing this wonderful privilege of being the announcers of God's grace and forgiveness in the world for all of these these last centuries. And we still live in a time when there are over, depending upon how you want to count them, somewhere between 4,500 and 6,600 people groups in the world don't have a credible witness to the gospel in their own culture. Now, we use the word people group. It kind of has some can refer to a, like a cultural distinction or a language distinction. And the differences in numbers, whether or not you want to consider the people groups in each nation separate. I mean, like in, there's a part in Africa, there's a group known as the Fulani. These are kind of like migrant uh, herdsmen. And, you know, so they're in, they're in Mali, they're in Burkina Faso, they're in Niger. So do you kind of consider them one people group or is there the Mali contingent of the Fulani and the Burkina Faso contingent of the Fulani. So, so you get the differences in number. But when you count those all up, that's almost 3 billion people. You don't have any culturally integrated, speaking from their heart language, credible, significant witness to the gospel. And we're 2,000 years and you want to kind of scratch your head and say, well, what has the church been doing? I think after 2,000 years, we're going to at least get everywhere, right? But what I want you to see today is that God's not trying to heap something onto you that's going to try to weight you down. Jesus is trying to give them a gift. He's telling them, you know what? I'm not just saying shalom. I'm not just saying I, I hope your life gets better. I'm showing up, and, and I, I'm trying to give you the gift. Life really can be good. He said, here's, here's the key. I've been sent, sending you. Now, we're, we're not supposed to create the gospel. That's what Jesus said. His role in coming was to institute, to create the gospel. He gave his life as a ransom for many, but you and I are supposed to go announce that. But in a more general sense, what Jesus is saying, I am giving you the privilege to set aside any other purpose of life Except for the purpose that I'm trying to give you. Father has sent me. I give you. Now, let me try to unpack this just a, a little bit. When you look at the life of Christ, one of the things that really stands out from his humanity that made him so incredible was that he had a clearly and succinct sense of mission in the earliest days of his life. You know, we have an account from the Gospels where he's 12 years old, right? And he's, and he's lagged behind the caravan that's headed back home to the northern part of Israel. He stayed behind in Jerusalem. When his parents come looking for him, you know, they say, well, here you are, finally, when they find him in the temple after days of searching. And he says, well, why would you look anyplace else? Don't you, I mean, you should know I'd be in my father's house. I mean, he's 12 years old, and he knows what his life is about, you know? And, and what Jesus is saying... I'm trying to give you an opportunity to set aside all the other purposes that can fill your life, and I'm, I'm trying to give you the purpose that matters forever, one that really makes a difference. Now, you, you can't limit it just to the proclamation of the gospel. I mean, certainly 
you know, what, you know, when we think about the, the, the purposes of God for our lives, and there's lots of language we could use, it's, but it's certainly about God wants us to live in a loving relationship with Him. He wants us to grow in, in, in our Christ-likeness. He wants us to serve, you know, the body with our giftedness. He, he wants us to minister, you know, in a, and then He gives us this incredible gift of being on mission in the world, right? And, and here, when you and I live with mission, our lives get simpler, get prioritized, there's great motivation, there's direction, there can be simplicity. And, and what an incredible thing when all of that is built around the purpose of God, what God really has designed you for, the things that God's going to rejoice about for eternity, the things that are actually going to matter forever, to build your life. And Jesus said, I've come to show you how to have the life that I'm trying to give you so that your future can be better. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. And it's, it's a tremendous gift. You know, we, we live in a world where time when, when it seems like every diff, all kinds of different sources are trying to give us a mission, a purpose for our lives, right? You know, I mean, there used to be an old commercial. I, I think it was a UPS commercial, but it might have been a FedEx one. It says, you know, their, their whole theme was you've got to have a package. Nobody in the first service remembered those commercials either. Maybe it wasn't a good commercial, but I remember it. But their big thing was you've got to have a package because if you don't have a package, somebody's going to give you a package. And it was always a funny story kind of idea. I've got to tell you, if, if, if you and I don't embrace the purpose that God gives us, it's going to get filled with something else. We're going to be living our lives trying to get the approval of other people or we're going to be living our lives trying to run away from our past or we're going to be trying to we're going to be, have our lives governed around trying to get ahead and be more successful than the people who live down the street or somehow get into a place where we think we're, we're financially successful or we're so healthy we're going to live forever. We can, we can fill it up with all kinds of stuff, right? You know, and the world, you've got to be doing this. It's got to be the most important. Man, you should be just, you know, you should eat nothing but carrots. You know, the world's always trying to give you some kind of an agenda. And Jesus says, you know, I'm, I'm trying to tell you, you can set that all aside. And the gift of living this new life, of avoiding the resurrection hangover, is to build your life on the purpose that I'm trying to give you. This party draws out the fact that, that you and I have the privilege of announcing the good news. Christ came announcing the good news. You and I have the privilege of announcing the good word. For the most of you right now, as your reaction is, I don't want that job. That's not a gift. <laughs> That's a burden. I want to tell you, it's a gift. It is a gift to be able to share, to announce the good news to the world. There's several different ways to do that. I'm not going to run through all of them, but let me just get, Some of that is, is, is simply you and I just telling the story of the gospel. You know, and just, just, just sharing what the gospel is, and it can be as simple as, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Some of you would like it a lot more detail than that. You have, you have a capacity for a lot more than that. You know, you can find a way to present the gospel in almost every good spiritual resource. If you have a study Bible, I would be floored if there is not a gospel outline in your study Bible. Books that you're holding in your hand, these, these are the cheap Bibles that we bought to put up underneath the seats. You look at 
page 7. That's V-I-I, in other words, before Genesis 1. If you look at V-I-I, there's a plan of salvation. There's a gospel presentation, even in the Bibles that are in. We have these out in the lobby and in our paperbacks. I mean, there is a way for you to understand what the gospel message is and be able to say to somebody, hey, let me tell you something. Let me just tell the story. Others of you, another way besides just sharing the gospel is to share your story. We try to do that regularly here at Hope Chapel, trying to encourage you to, to do that. Except last week, Melissa Ayantola stood here and told you her story. How she had interacted with the gospel. I thought she was wonderful because she was very natural and honest and vulnerable. And there's probably different ways to summarize what she said, but what she said was that, you know, she was going from relationship that wasn't good for her to relationship that wasn't good to her to relationship that wasn't good for her, primarily because she wasn't right yet. She found somebody she knew could be right for her. She really went on the search of, how do I get right? based upon what I've seen in him, and she found that answer in God. She uses the language of, she just had one of these moments where she just said yes to God. Some of you remember uh, not, not too long ago, Scott Connor, another uh, uh, adult in our church, stood in our pulpit and told us, you know, he said, I, I was just in a place in my life where, where I knew I needed to pray. He said, and I just, you know, I, things were kind of dark and this and that, and I, I, I felt like I was kind of swimming, and, and somebody I knew just said, you know, you should just start praying. You should pray. And he said, I just started praying. Then it dawned on me, like, I don't even know who I'm praying to. And, and then from there, he just started studying the Scriptures and trying to listen to the stuff, and lo and behold, he truly met the God that he was talking to. Just share your story. Sometimes it comes out of your passions. Some of you know John Gallagher from our church. One of John's uh, passions is just ministering to the homeless. He's followed that passion. You know, he, he and his wife, they're, they're really kind of the ringleaders now of a soup kitchen that takes place over in air every Tuesday night. Every Saturday they go into the city and they're a part of a ministry that's handing out clothes and serving a hot meal and they're sharing the gospel message on a Sunday and trying to minister to those who have no place to go home to. And, and he doesn't create, just following his passions along those lines. Some of you is just, just taking advantage of the opportunities you have. I mean, yesterday I went up, I visited in the hospital as much as I could with a guy who who's, worships in our church, very quiet, stays behind the scene, very old school, no cell phone, no computer, no TV. Guy who, who, who likes the hermit-style type of life. Great guy, though, in many ways, but very quiet, very independent, very separate. But through the slow, consistent relationship building, through a joint employment, Sean Pendergast was able to reach out to him and bring him to start worshiping with us on a regular this is stuff you can do. And I got to tell you, those are the things <laughs> that lead us to avoid the Easter hangover. I got to tell you, if, if, if you think about Easter, that Jesus has overcome death, been placed in a position where he can give us the resources so that you guys can really, we can really live the lives that, that, that God's intended for us, these full lives, and you and I just settle for doing the laundry, and making dinner, and getting through the workday. So the defining moment for us today is to recognize that one of the greatest gifts of God that he gives to us is to set aside every other purpose and just embrace his purpose.
That's what Jesus was doing with the disciples. He says, Peter, you know what? Reading through the lines, Peter, you don't have to go back to fishing. You really are going to be a fisher of men. You know, Matthew, you don't have to go stand on the side of the street anymore and collect coins as a tax collector, as people think. But I'm going to have you go out and walk the streets sharing the gospel with people. You don't have to go back to the way life was. Go back to the life that God always intended for. I really pray that that's your defining moment today. It, it, you know, if in the wake of Easter, life isn't going to change for you, then you really, really missed the message. Pray together for just a moment. I'll confess to you today, Life has this blinding effect. River with a strong current of life. That's so we can get caught up in the drift. Father, grant us a defining moment. Changes the trajectory of our lives. Gift. Gift of the resurrection.